In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her, daughter, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Thanks, Ali. Uh, if you keep your Bibles open to uh, Ruth chapter 1 and take out your leaflets, there'll be an outline of the sermon there, but also some Bible references that uh, you'll need that I'll point to. Um, now, it's going to get hotter and hotter, right? So I just make sure that if you need to go outside for a breather, do that whenever you need to. If you need to get some water, make sure you do that as well. Uh, that's the water coolers up the front and at the back. Let me pray, and then we'll have a look at Ruth. Father God, we give you great thanks that you speak to us today, and Father, your comforting words are so reassuring, and they are warm. Uh, so Father, we thank you that we get to hear you today. We pray that uh, we might be able to hear it and understand it, and Father, feel, the, uh, feel the, the gentleness of your care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, it might seem a little strange to start a new year with uh, Ruth chapter 1. It's, it really is not the cheeriest of chapters, is it? Filled with the celebrations and joy of a happy new year. But it is a fitting passage because within, there is great hope. There is immense hope in Ruth, and it just gets better and better. So I get to, to start it off. And by the end of Ruth, if you keep coming back for the rest of, uh, of, of Ruth, uh, it's, it's brilliant. It is a, it's a great book of hope. Very fitting for the 1st of January, 2023. We don't have to dig very far to discover, though, that within all the, uh, the joy and celebration and fireworks that are around today, there are some real sadness and loss that's underneath. Not everything is happy and cheery in our lives. And we can certainly ask where God is in all of it. The book of Ruth is all about a foreigner finding refuge in God. That's why the series is called Refuge Under God's Wings. Uh, and chapter one, we get to hear about uh, someone finding that refuge. But also, as we look through the, the book of Ruth, we find that the blessings that can come as a result of sitting under God's refuge. In this first chapter, we will see two women in the midst of tremendous loss, hearing of God coming to the aid of his people, two very ordinary people with very real concerns and very real emotions. Now, we're going to see God's light of hope pierce through the dark clouds of despair in our Bible passage. And my hope is that this same hope will truly pierce through the despair that we might feel. We're going to take a look at two themes that come out of this book. The first one is rejecting God's aid. The second is responding to God's aid. And then we're going to think through what it means that Jesus has come to our aid and what it will mean for us today. So firstly, rejecting God's aid. Right from the start, we see God's people making an escape from the homeland, from their homeland, Bethlehem. And at that point, Ruth's not even in the picture. It's like the backstory of the Christmas story, you know, like the little town of Bethlehem. But it's not as cheery as uh, the Christmas story makes it out to be. Um, it's, well, we'll find out. It's a little bit sad. But before we dig into the book, we need to get up to speed on what's happening for God's people at that time. It was a time when the Israelites were rejecting God and his aid. Verse 1 tells us, in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, I don't know whether you've read Judges. Uh, the time of the judges was not a good time in Israel's history. In fact, it was an incredibly disheartening time of failure in God's people. Uh, the judges in those times were not the judges of today. The judges were more like leaders uh, who brought their people into, into warfare to deliver them from the grips of their enemies. That's what judges did in those days. Sadly, Israel would fall into a pattern where they'd remember God whilst the judge was around and then very quickly forsake him and forget him when the judges aren't. And their evil conduct became worse and worse after each cycle uh, to the point where the book of Judges closes with the Israelites themselves killing each other because of their own evil. They were worse than the enemies all around them. I mean, listen to the last verses of the book of Judges. It's in your leaflet. It says, verse 24, At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, 
each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel had forsaken their God and his refuge. And so this book, the book of Ruth, is set during Israel's spiral into evil. Now, with the context of Judges, let's have a look at the first few verses of Ruth. With the Israelites rejecting their God, it has had implications for their land to such a point that living there became impossible. The people now consider leaving God's refuge. So verse 1, there was a famine in the land that God had given his people. And usually in Israel's history, famine comes as judgment by God for Israel's evil. And Israel has had shown plenty of evil in these days. The fact that Elimelech and family had to leave the promised land tells us how desperate it's become in their own hometown and how evil Israel had become. Even worse, to go to the country of Moab just speaks of an even greater desperation. For the Moabites, if you remember the book of Judges, the Moabites were the very enemies of Israel. They were the ones who oppressed the people of Israel during that time of Judges. I mean, just imagine having to go to your enemies for lodging and food. They thought that they would be able to survive better in enemy territory. I mean, if you think about it in today's times, it'd be like the Ukrainians going over to Russia for refuge and food. I mean, there's no way that the Ukrainians will look at where all the missiles are coming from and walk towards it. Imagine how desperate it would have to be for that to happen. It must have been really desperate for the Israelites. It's perfectly understandable that Elimelech was just trying to look out for his family um, and try and find some lodging and food elsewhere just to care for his family. But the problem was never the lack of food. The problem was never the lack of food. The problem was that they had turned their backs on God. That was the real problem. Time and time again, God reminded them that he would richly provide all they need if only they trust him, as they trusted him during his previous rescues. Far from repenting from their treatment of God and their idolatry, Their leaving of their land just looks like they're moving further away from God and closer to the idols of their neighbors. Sadly, tragedy strikes, and strikes overwhelmingly. First, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. The sons married women from Moab, and that was also something that God forbade. God didn't want his people to be swayed by the idols of Canaan, which is what landed them in trouble in the first place. And knowing Israel's fickle nature, we're expecting that they would end up forgetting God and turning to the idols of their Moabite wives. That's what we're expecting. That's, what, that's the pattern that, that we saw from Judges. I realize that's not the most positive way of introducing the character whose name this book bears, but Ruth was a Moabite woman married into an Israelite family. This now means that Naomi is left uh, with with her two sons who tragically, again, verse 5, ends their life. Oh, well, their, their life ends. 
Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So now she is left without men to provide the income or the food or the protection and the children who'd keep their name alive and their inheritance within the family. It's a really sad time. Leaving God's refuge and his land didn't in the end lead to safety, but to loss. Turning to their own wisdom and strength meant they bore the consequences of their decisions. I feel like the proper response to reading verses 1 to 5 here is to feel the real brokenness of the world. Not just their world, but our world. It's just crummy. I don't know any other word that I can use except that it's just crummy. Life isn't supposed to be like that. To be filled with loss and heartache and fear. I wonder if there are those of us who are feeling the kind of loss that Naomi has felt. You might feel quite a connection with Naomi and Ruth right now. I mean, just in the week before Christmas, there were already two funerals that had affected our our congregations here. No matter the smiles we put on our faces... Loss is real. But it's not as if God is taking great delight in this at all. Far from it, he is saddened by it. He is the one who delights in being with his people, providing for his people, protecting his people, but he will not continue to offer his blessings and his presence and his love to our backs. He's not going to continue to do it. And Israel had turned their backs on God, which is just an example of a world who's turned its back on God today. That's a pretty hard start, isn't it? It's a fairly hard and sad start to the book of Ruth. I promise we'll get that up. Well, it seems that there may be signs that Israel have started to turn back to God. Verse 6 gives us the biggest good news of the chapter, and it is such a relief to hear. After the first five verses, verse 6, here's what it says. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Do you hear the good news? God comes to the rescue of his people. Yet again, if there's anything that the context of Judges tells us is that God persists in rescuing his people with a lot of grace because his people certainly didn't deserve it. Here is another example of his gracious action. He's feeding his people again. Just as God's rescued his people from foreign enemies, he's rescued them now from starvation. And God is keen for people to see that they prosper not because of their own strength, not because of our own strength or our own wisdom, but by his initiative, his initiative, his wisdom, his provision. Despite all the rejection he faced, God had not rejected his people. They surely deserved it, but he didn't. He still cared for them. And looked out for them. I think of today, uh, whenever we find large-scale suffering, Red Cross is not far away. You know Red Cross? 
One of the most impressive things about them isn't their care for their vulnerable, uh, even though that's impressive enough. What's most impressive is that their care is neutral. You know what I mean? They care for any human in suffering impartially, not taking any sides in a conflict, indeed giving aid to all sides of a war who are suffering. I mean, something that you wouldn't see is one country in the middle of a conflict with another country, one country setting up an aid agency to care for their enemies wounded in the middle of a conflict. You won't see that. Think about God, what has God done here. God had arranged for his aid to go to a people who had deserted him and joined the enemy, no doubt. Now, that's the epitome of grace, of unmerited help. Well, that is good news indeed. And so Naomi and her daughters-in-law start to make their way to the promised land. It's a glimpse that God's salvation plan to bring his people into his place under his rule is coming back on track. And just as they start on their way down the road, Naomi, she is gripped by a great concern for her two daughters-in-law as well as a concern to call on God. So verse 8, follow with me here. It says, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. It's a surprise to hear of the kindness that Orpah and Ruth had shown to their husbands and to Naomi. Instead of being a threat, I mean, that's what we were used to in Judges, right? We were used to the threat, but instead we see kindness. What a refreshing change to the pattern that we're so used to here. It's the sort of kindness that we should be hearing about in the land of Israel itself, in Judah itself. And here, we find it in enemy territory. It's a surprise. Naomi returns the kindness by calling on God to show them kindness. She feels that they will be more likely to prosper with their own mothers than with her. Maybe, maybe if they went back, they would be able to find a husband again. We see glimpses of faith that Naomi shows in her God. She calls him by name and calls on him to bless these two Moabitesses. For those who know the end of the book, Naomi's prayer will be answered, at least for Ruth, but in quite a spectacular way. We then get this tender exchange where there's weeping and kisses and Orpah and Ruth both refuse to leave their mother-in-law and they want to go with her instead. Naomi tries even harder to convince them, and she gives them this scenario. If, if it went such tra- under such tragic circumstances, it would be just so funny. Verse 12, it says, Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then give birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? And you could just see Orpah and Ruth just doing the maths in their head and going, Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. Here's a concern for the women to have husbands who will be able to provide and to protect and to provide children. Well, this time Orpah was convinced, and so they left for home. Ruth, on the other hand, clung, verse 14, to Naomi, and we're left saying, now that's that's such devotion. Such love she had for Naomi 
that it was more important than for her own welfare. And the interchange that results between Naomi and Ruth is, it's really interesting. Did you see it? There's a bit of a contrast in there. So let me read it and see whether you can see it. Verse 15, it says, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth's devotion. Did you notice? It didn't just extend to Naomi, but to her people, and also to Naomi's God. So determined is she that she calls upon God himself to keep her accountable. Notice that she sought to join God's people in God's place and to sit under God's rule. It's like Ruth gave up her Moabite passport along with its security and pledged allegiance to the nation of Israel. This was her citizenship ceremony, so to speak. Becoming a, a citizen of Australia, I mean, I remember one of the reasons why I became a citizen of this great country is because if I ever got in trouble elsewhere, overseas or interstate, anywhere, I know that Australia will come looking for me and try and find me aid. Well, the other side of the coin is true as well, that if I make trouble overseas, then Australia will come and find me and make sure that they judge me according to Australian law, which, also, which is also merciful, might I say that. But one of the great benefits of being an Australian citizen is thus. Ruth here, she's not even thinking of the privileges of joining Israel right now. She's just called on God to ensure she keeps her word to Naomi. She's placed herself under God's rule and even his judgment. Did you find, did you find Naomi's words a bit jarring? You know when you read Naomi's words? Did you find that that was a little bit out of place? It's jarring to hear her call on Ruth to return not only to her people, but to her gods. I take it it's part and parcel of returning to her people. You can't have one without the other. It involves accepting their company and customs and religion. Yet it's so out of place, isn't it? For a person of the only one true God to even concede to the idea of turning to false gods... The irony here is that at this point, Ruth showed more devotion to the God of Israel than even an Israelite did. Now, that being said, Ruth's main devotion really here is to Naomi, right? The two women make their way to Bethlehem, and it causes a stir. Naomi was still remembered and recognized by her neighbors, even though she'd been away for a decade, but they could see a change in her. They could see that change. And she points out what has changed in verse 20. She says, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. We heard first of Naomi's feelings against God earlier in verse 13, where she says that the Lord's hand had turned against her. And here she gets to the point of changing a name because of it. Can you imagine how strongly you would have to feel to have to change your name? See, the name Naomi means pleasant. Well, there is nothing pleasant Naomi feels about her life right now. It's better to call her name Mara, which means bitter. Not pleasant, but bitter. That's how she feels, and she blames God for making her life unpleasant. You know, there is an, there's an inappropriateness of Naomi's words, but there's also an appropriateness as well. There's an inappropriateness, but an appropriateness. It's inappropriate because she places the blame on God whilst not acknowledging the evil and godlessness that her own people have shown. There's no sense of repentance. There's no recognition of God's right justice. No mention of the fact that God has gave warning after warning and has shown grace after grace in previous rescues and previous times to this very same people. No mention. It's inappropriate. But it is appropriate that she acknowledges that God is the Almighty, that He is the sovereign one who is in charge of everything. She doesn't think that her circumstances can be changed by her own hands. Her call for God to bless her daughters in laws is another expression of this. It is God who can change their outlook. They can't change it, she can't change it, no one else can change it except. For God, it's appropriate that she acknowledges that God is almighty. The chapter shows perfect symmetry at this point as it returns to where it began, back in Bethlehem. And this time, instead of a famine, it's the beginning of barley harvest. It confirms that the Lord has come to the aid of his people and Naomi and Ruth have reached this aid. Friends, there may be some here who can identify with Naomi and Ruth when it comes to the loss that you have experienced. Now, I would not claim to know what it's like for you. I have sat plenty with people who have suffered in our church, who have shed tears because of their loss, but I can't imagine what you might be feeling. I would not be able to claim to know but I do know someone who does. And you know, he knows it better than you. That person is Jesus. Jesus is the one, God the Son, that has come to the aid of his people. Have a look with me in 1 Peter 2. It's printed in your leaflets. 1 Peter chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, 
You have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The loss that Naomi and Ruth felt, Jesus felt more intensely as he lost his very own life. And far from resisting or defending himself, he gave it up willingly. He entrusted himself to his father, his father God who judges justly. He did that so that by his wounds, by his wounds, we can be healed. Now he bids us to return to Jesus, who is the great shepherd. He is able to protect and to guide and to provide for us. Because by his wounds, we are forgiven for going astray like lost sheep. And he provides more than food, I hope you see. He provides life eternal. God has come to the aid of the world, ultimately by sending his son, Jesus. So what is our response going to be? Well, firstly, God calls us to trust in Jesus. Similar to Ruth, to follow Jesus means to leave your old ways behind, including our idols that we've collected, and instead to commit to Jesus, to commit to him, to his people, and putting our hope in his kingdom coming. It would mean that we benefit from the aid of God's loving shepherd, Jesus. For those here who haven't started to believe in Jesus yet, Becoming a Christian means ceasing from doing things as we see fit and instead to do things as Jesus sees fit. And what you'll discover, just ask any Christian here, is that what Jesus sees fit to do is far more loving than anyone would come up with here. That's first. Trust in Jesus. Secondly, God wants us to lean on him in the midst of our loss. Know that the Lord has not forgotten you. He has not stopped caring for you. He grieves just as you grieve, and he grieves for every death of a person. How do we know? How do we know? Because he sent his son. He sent his son Jesus to put an end to it. He lost his life so we don't have to lose our lives. And for those who believe in him, we don't see death as the end, but a mere marker in an eternity of life with Jesus. Friends, I might not know the extent of your loss, your pain, your suffering, but Jesus does. He's an amazing shepherd who cares for his sheep. As a pastor... I reckon my job, the most important job I have, is to explain that the greatest pastor is not me. You'd be in big trouble if it was. The biggest pastor, the most significant one, is Jesus. That's my job. So if I come talk to you, and if I pray with you, and if I sit with you, in your tears, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to point you to the greatest shepherd that we have. 
everything that I ever want for the people I care for, Jesus does. And he does it perfectly. Where I can't understand the pain, he does. Where I can't be there by your side 24-7, he can. Where I can't give expertise, he gives his expertise, his wisdom, his insight. Where I can't fix your body, he gives us a resurrection body. Where I can't give you a sure hope for the next two days, not even for one, he secures a hope for us with his life. Where I can't, keep, I can't keep people trusting in Jesus, that is my greatest hope. That is my greatest wish. Friends, he holds on to you with an unrelenting grip. Everything that I've ever wanted to be able to help a person in need, to be able to help you in need, Jesus does perfectly. So lean on him. Thirdly, thank God for his provision. The book of Ruth reminds us that it is God who provides our food and our shelter, along with all else we need to survive. I mean, the floods, the fires, the pandemic, all remind us of how much we are not in control. We've got to be thankful that God continued to provide us with food even for these past three years. I mean, there was this time, and it was ridiculous, where we couldn't have lettuce and uh, cucumbers. Did you remember that? That was like a blip in history, I feel. But you know there were other vegetables. <laughs> it feels silly saying that, right? But God provided those. We're not in hunger now because God has provided. And it's not just the food, but our homes and the medicine and the family and the friends. Everything that we have comes from the hands of God. And for those of you during Christmas time and even New Year's time who have shared your belongings, your food, your shelter with people, even your air conditioning. I see some people waving their, uh, fanning their cells now, even your air conditioning. Thank you for doing it. You are showing and displaying the very hospitality that God has shown us because he has provided to the utmost what we have needed. I'm going to pray. There is a reflection question that I would usually ask that uh, you have a look at, but I feel you can take it home with you to air-conditioned bliss and maybe have a look at it there. But I'm just going to close off in prayer before, uh, before I invite Elaine to come and continue in leading us in prayers. Let's pray. Father God, we give you great thanks that you are our refuge and your wings are wide and they are strong and they are comforting and they're assuring. Father, we give you thanks that you have come to our aid. You have not left us. You shepherd us in the person of Jesus. And we thank you that by his wounds, we can be healed. In his name we pray. Amen.